right? You step out for a second and the game-winning shot is scored. You know, you've been waiting all this time on the little video for like the, the, the eagles to be born. You know what I'm talking about? Like when they have that 24-hour camera waiting for these wild animals to be born. You go to the bathroom and oh, there they are. They're, they're, it happened. The big, the big thing happens and you're not there for it. Yeah, that's Thomas. That's the situation he's in. We've all been there, right? It's like, I was there the first time when Jesus showed up. It's the thing you tell your kids about, you're not there, right? So next, they tell him, we've seen the Lord, and they're all excited. And Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, it's really specific, right? Like we saw him, we saw he had the marks and everything from the, and he's like, no, I got to do it. So Mary Magdalene already told him earlier today. The other disciples told him. And these guys were probably the closest people in Thomas's life. I mean, they just traveled together for like three years, but he doesn't believe his friends either. I think he doesn't believe his friends because he's been hurt too bad. I don't think Thomas is some kind of proto-modern scientific man who needs to have this hard evidence for everything. I think his heart's broken. And for him to believe his friends, he would have to open up his heart again to be disappointed, to be hurt, to be crushed in emotion and in spirit. I think he's starting to sink into cynicism because cynicism says, if I don't believe anyone, then I cannot be made to be hurt by anything. And I think Thomas is right about at that moment. It seems like he's sinking there where no matter what happens, he's not gonna trust again. He's not gonna believe again because his heart is too broken. It hurts too bad and it's safer not to believe. I know none of you, this is all hypothetical, right? You've never been there. And we read on. A week later, his, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe we're wrong about Thomas in this moment. Here, here's, here's the thing. He doesn't believe it based on any of what his friends are saying, but he's still there. He's still there with the disciples. He didn't peace out. He kind of sticking around to see the results of what he just put out there. He didn't leave the relationship. He was still in fellowship. His distrust was actually, hear me on this, this doesn't maybe make sense at first, but his distrust is actually an act of faith. Not, not if he had said that and left, that wouldn't have been an act of faith. But he said, I won't believe it unless I see it and experience it for myself. And then he stayed. Distrust can be an act towards belief and faith if you do it the way Thomas is doing it here. Um, 
on Wednesday, I was at uh, the city, city council meeting downtown. And I was there with a number of other clergy with MICA, you know, the organization that we partner with. And we were there because of these police reforms, these ordinances that were on the line. And I won't get into the details of what all of those were or why it was so crucial for us to be there in that moment, but we were there to hold the public officials accountable. And there was a level of distrust that we had in those politicians to do the right thing, to make the appropriate decisions. And there was a lot of reason for that, things that we had learned about that were happening kind of behind the scenes and things like that. But here's what I want to offer to you, that those folks that showed up those folks, those clergy members and those other uh, volunteer people and uh, nonprofit folks and, and, and just regular, regular folks, that they were people of a deep and abiding faith. Not because they were clergy, because they showed up believing that it was possible to change the outcome by making their distrust known out loud. You hear what I'm saying? If they had sunk into cynicism and skepticism, well, they would have been sitting at home or doing any number of other things, but certainly not down there at City Hall saying, do the right thing. That takes an incredible amount of belief, distrusting out loud. There's a... Um, a missionary and scholar, this, um, this British guy, and he worked in India for over 30 years. And his, his name's Leslie Newbegin. And uh, he wrote this book called Proper Confidence. Doesn't that sound British? So British. And, and if he wasn't British, I would think kind of cocky too, like proper confidence, you know. But that's, that's the kind of thing British people say, proper a lot, you know. Um, and in this book, he talks a lot about the nature of doubt, of belief, of, of cynicism and trust and faith and certainty and all these different ideas. And, and one of the themes there is the connection between being able to know something and that you have to believe in order to know. So he says this, there can be no knowing without personal commitment. We must believe in order to know. And here's what I'm getting at here. Thomas stayed. He was committed. He was present. So he was looking to understand something. He was looking to have knowledge and belief beyond the distrust that he felt like. Right now, in our current world, we are ravaged in our, in our culture by the need for certainty, to be able to know something without a shadow of a doubt. And if we don't, we try to shut it all down. But there is nothing that we know and experience that doesn't take belief. You have to even believe in your own faculties to reason and to understand in order to say that you know something. Everything we do as human beings is predicated on belief. So, continuing verse 26, the doors were locked. 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, because Thomas was there. If Thomas had peaced out, he would have never experienced this moment. He would have went on about his life and probably gotten a lot colder, a lot harder, and had a pretty miserable life. But he was there. And he said to Thomas, go ahead, Thomas, put your, put your finger here. See, see my hands and wrists, That's in the Greek, hands and wrists. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Go ahead, Thomas. So Thomas gets an answer to his out loud distrusting that he was willing to do. And Jesus tells him, stop doubting and believe. In this moment, Thomas uh, recognizes Jesus. He sees him there, sees the greeting, and gets to do exactly what he hoped he would be able to do. And in verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is especially important, the greeting or the response that Thomas has here because he's not recognizing Jesus as his rabbi, as his teacher, as um, a good guy who he's happy to see. He's recognizing him as God. This is really strange to me in a lot of ways. It's extremely unnerving to me at first, actually, because What made Jesus recognizable to Thomas and the other disciples was his scars, his wounds. That's how to these male disciples, Jesus was visible and clear and apparent to them as God. I don't want my God to have scars and wounds. I want my God to be invulnerable. I want my God to have no evidence of distrust and vulnerability. But this is so vital and crucial that in fact, huge aspects of Christian faith hang on this revelation of God in Jesus. There's a really fancy name for it even. It's called the hypostatic union. And it just basically means basically that within Jesus was both full God and full humanity. And that those two things were joined together and are not ever separated. So that means right now, God has scars. And those scars came from trusting and being wounded. The very thing Thomas didn't think he could do again. The very thing that he was having to distrust out loud, that his heart could be broken again, that he could be wounded again, that he could open himself up. And here Jesus appears and is recognized exactly through his wounds. You see, our wounds 
are the reason why we distrust and we doubt. Are they not? Because we have believed and we've been disappointed. We've been hurt. We've handed somebody our heart and they have disfigured it. And yet it's the epicenter. Our scars, our wounds are the epicenter of how we can be known and know God. The kingdom of heaven is as near as the scars in our bodies and our minds and our hearts. Thomas had to be there. He had to distrust out loud. He had to be willing to believe even in his unbelief. I'm gonna say this. I'm going to let people know where I'm at because I want so badly to be able to believe. So I have to say out loud what I can't yet believe right now. I'm gonna read another quote from Newbegin again. One does not learn anything except by believing something. And conversely, if one doubts everything, one learns nothing. On the other hand, believing everything uncritically is the road to disaster. The faculty of doubt is essential. But as I have argued, rational doubt always rests on faith and not vice versa. The relationship between the two cannot be reversed. In order for Thomas to even get to the moment where he could distrust out loud, it was predicated on his belief that he might be proven wrong, that his doubt might be proven wrong, that the relationship was worth him being open and honest enough about to see what might happen, distrusting out loud. And then Jesus says something. It's almost like a moment where Jesus like looks at the camera and is like speaking right to us. And even, you know, like on, on a theater or like SNL, they're talking to the other person, but they look right this way so you can see their face clearly. He says in verse 29, uh, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Us, us. We must be willing to do what Thomas wasn't willing to do in some way. This is a great picture. It's a great story that shows all of our stories. So here's, here's every one of our stories in here. I trusted, I was wounded, and now it's more difficult for me to trust, right? It's everybody's story in here. And then there's kind of options with what you do after that that will predicate what you experience in the rest of your life. You can remain unknown and untrusting, and it looks like this. I doubt people and God want to know me or be known by me. So I tell them what they want to hear, and I don't open up. So basically, you don't distrust out loud. You aren't honest with what's going on inside of you. And you keep it all inside because you know if you let it out, you'll get hurt. 
So then the end result is you remain unknown and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I can't trust people, so I won't trust them so, because they don't really wanna know me, so now I am and remain unknown by other people and by God. The other option could look something like this, how I can know and become known, which is always a piece of faith and trust. I recognize that within myself, I recognize within myself the truth of what I think and feel. That's what I start with. I, don't even, I, I, I can't even get there if I'm denying in myself what I'm feeling and thinking. So then once I do that, I can tell the truth to somebody. I can talk about what I really think and feel. That's what Thomas actually did that. He did that. And he stuck around to see what happened afterwards, which means this last part, he trusted God and others with the outcome, which is another way of saying he had a belief that others wanted to know him and to be known for what he was really feeling, what was really going on. So those are the kind of choices we have with the wounds in our life. It's really hard to do. You gotta do it like a whole lot of times. And it doesn't often become, um, become that easy. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's really interesting what a, a, a summary of what the writer there is saying is, if you want to know God and be known by God, you have to offer up some belief. There's no way around it. Any relationship in your life requires a embarrassingly high amount of belief. To believe that somebody loves you when they say they do, that they, that they care about your well-being even when they make mistakes and they're imperfect and they hurt you and even harm you sometimes. If we believe, the writer says here, if we believe in Jesus as the Messiah, then we get to have life because knowing and being known by God is life. Christian, what do you believe? We, we ask that every morning, right? Every Sunday morning. Christian, what do you believe? Do you want life? I hope you do. It will take being honest, distrusting out loud, and sticking around long enough to see if there's people and if God wants to know you and if you can know God. Let's pray.